Wow, it's the Dipped Podcast. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. It's another beautiful day to be alive. Am I right? Oh my gosh. We have a very special episode for y'all today, and I can't wait to introduce our very special guest this time around. Um, but we'll go ahead and reintroduce the crew. First up, we have... Yo, what up? It's your boy, Kevin, a.k.a. Atticus Warhol, a.k.a. Lab the Rat, a.k.a. the mayor of Little Tokyo. Sevi Sev, Cash Money, Sev the Savage. Boom. Chaplow. And uh, you already know who it is. It's your boy coming every single week, Quentin, a.k.a. your boy, Q. Oh. Um... And, uh, oh my gosh, guys, we have such a special guest today. Can you please introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Mariko Lockridge, um, a.k.a. Supariko. Yeah. <laughs> a.k.a. Curator of Chaos. Ooh. Yeah. That's, That's pretty one. sick. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So happy to have you with us, Mariko. Um, so... You guys met, uh, I know Kevin's been getting really active in Little Tokyo and Los Angeles, LA, and he's had the opportunity to meet a lot of really incredible people through Little Tokyo. Um, could you talk a little bit about, I guess, your involvement in the community? Have you, did you, I'm not, I don't even know how you guys met. <laughs> um, I met Mariko at the Suhiro talk, mm. and then for some reason, I saw her two extra times that same week. It was like three times in a week. And then that was after so many people are like, oh, you shouldn't, you should meet this girl. You should, you should talk with her. And I was like, I don't know where to find her. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then sure enough, she's like, shows up to like this event and this event. And she's just like, you know, and then, um, what was it? Like mama talk. Like, uh, oh at, yeah. At Mama's the, night the, market. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the place where I, I beasted those noodles. Oh, I saw yeah. that. Yeah. So then I showed her, and she's like, "Wow, she, <laughs> that's she, really she, something." She <laughs> yeah. She's like, cool, "Nice meeting you." Yeah. <laughs> and then she helped me take like the noodles to my truck. And then um, after that, it just, it just you know, when you start seeing, when you start looking for yellow cars, it's like you know, you, you see more and more often. So then. Yesterday I was at Uprisers and she um, was a part of that and organized that from like you know the beginning, nice. and she's just she's just part of a lot of things, but she can better tell you than I can. Yeah, amazing. You want to hear about how me and Kevin met? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Let's let's, let's hear your <laughs> let's hear yours. You know what's so funny is um, <laughs> so recently people will walk up to me and they'll be like, "Oh my God, thank you for the work you do," or they'll start talking to me about like something I spoke at or an event they saw me or an article about some of the work I do, and I'll be like, "Oh, thank you so much," and I'll be like trying to remember who they are, but I really can't. <laughs> so I'll be like, "Yeah, that was a great event. Thank you so much for your taking your interest. Thanks for listening in." So when Kevin came up to me at Mom as night market and started talking about Suikido, I was like, I'm so glad you're passionate about small business and the community, but like did not remember him, <laughs> um, but was definitely impressed by his, uh, you know, food eating contest skills. Yeah. Um, and, um, but then I ran into him um, a few days later at the Japanese wait at the Japan house in Hollywood mm. and he was wearing a tie and I was checking in and I look up and I'm like well this is a different vibe completely yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so and then yeah. what was crazy is I was putting together some of the visuals to um, help support and promote Uprisers Family Drive which mm. yesterday was the second 
um, annual Uprisers family drive. And as I'm putting together, I'm taking, looking for photos from last year, and I see like the group photo from last year. And Kevin and I are both in the photo yeah. at opposite ends <laughs> of the crazy, photo. That's yeah. <laughs> so, He's been here the whole time. <laughs> in the background, you see him in the background of photos. <laughs> uh, I, I was thinking of like the photo from The Shining. Yeah. He looks, he's like, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> It's just Kevin in like a 1950s photo in the back, like in his set. He's like been there for decades. Like, like in her like elementary school picture. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. So like now I just kind of like find him in random photos. <laughs> 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 it's a little creepy. <laughs> What's this photo doing of him in my apartment? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just like, oh, he's in the background of this group <laughs> shot also. So, um, yeah, so I guess we've met many times, or he's following me. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm not sure laughs> which. <laughs> just around. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I'm glad that you guys were able to uh, finally have a conversation that we could have you as our guests on this podcast. Um, yeah, so it seems like you've had an adventurous life, huh? <laughs> We'd love to hear about... Um, your origin I guess story. Your origin story. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you guys said origin story because I am a hardcore X Men fan. Yeah. Oh. And like, I love Marvel. Yeah. I love X Men. And actually, um, I teach small business basics to entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs as my career now. And when they get really stuck, I actually put them through an exercise where I made them talk about their origin story. Oh, okay. And I talk through like the comic book and the origin story. And the anti-hero mm. as part of like our exercise to come up with this. Mm. And I thought it was like maybe I was being a little corny, but um, mm. George Coe, someone who I really admire for branding and some of the work he's done um, around small business and storytelling, he was like, this is a great way to get people yeah. to like think through this. Mm. So mm. Um, nice. yeah, my origin story, I guess like, so I'm bilingual, biracial, binational. Um, mm. And I have lived between Japan and the U.S. all my life. I got on an airplane the first time when I was six months old. Flew to Japan with my mom and have been back and forth ever since. Um, went to high school in Japan, university there. Went to middle school in the U.S., elementary school here. Um, and I always tell people that having grown up between the two cultures and being able to directly juxtapose them, I feel like I've always been like on the outside but also connecting people like with that viewpoint mm. um and so um yeah so it's been my entire life i feel like i'm just interpreting people for other mm. people and trying to figure out how to connect them mm. um because of my relationship to them or what i see and where i feel like they could like really connect wow. as well so i worked on a reality tv show at one point wow. in japan about wow. clubbing scene in tokyo yeah. oh that sounds um, crazy yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know i also worked in a forever 21 in shibuya oh, yes. <laughs> Um, I worked in VIP services for a really popular hip-hop club in Tokyo at one point. Um, and later, I uh, was a writer for the Japan Times covering their entertainment section. And then I got into breaking news. I was actually a breaking news journalist, a, a VJ, a video journalist for Reuters Television. And I've worked in over a dozen countries around the world um, and, uh, you know, sent lives from Colombia or you know, shot footage in Kosovo or hung out with B-Boys in India. Mm. Um, and so I've gotten to meet a lot of people with a lot of perspectives. And yeah, my life has been a blessing. But yeah. these days I'm focused on small business. And I like to tell people I get to take my gift of storytelling and help other people, you know, take control of their narrative and okay. tell their stories so that, you know, people can really learn about like what's 
what uh, other kind of lifestyles kind of exist and where, you know, they can relate to understand each other better. That's pretty incredible. How was that experience going from Japan to the U.S., like during those different chunks of time? Because I feel like at least my middle school experience was a little chaotic, you know, just Mm -hmm. in its own. So to have that experience on top of jumping countries, how was that, I guess, going through that process of Yeah, like when you talk about... Sorry, um, I didn't mean to interrupt there. No, you're fine. No, no. <laughs> Broke the first rule no, of no, no, podcasting. That, no, that, yeah, you're totally fine. Um, yeah, like when you talk about origin stories, I always tell people this is probably like my biggest origin story when you think about the thing that like the hero of the comic or the film like kind of goes through. But when I um, was living in the U.S. between like 9 to 15, I didn't use Japanese at all and I'd mm. completely forgotten it. And then I moved back to Japan at 15, and literally I remember I got off the airplane, my mom looked at my sister and I, and just spoke straight Japanese and never went back to English again. And she enrolled us into a public Japanese high school where basically nobody spoke English. We were in a super, we were in Tokyo, but we were in kind of like a bit of like a really local neighborhood and um, I spent about two years being like super isolated because I was like a mute like I was like this is how babies feel all the time you just want to communicate what's happening and no one understands that's why they cry all the time I get it (laughs) Um, so yeah so I was you know I became really observational because that's all I could do you know just observe people and try to figure out so I learned a lot about I guess reading people through that because I literally could not understand them. Um, and uh, so that was a pretty traumatic experience. Uh, yeah. like, like now since then, people are like, that sounds horrible. I was like, oh, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> My parents always called it character building. <laughs> oh, funny. I was like, you're going to learn today. Yeah. <laughs> um, but now I speak Japanese fluently, and it's gotten me, like, all of my work opportunities. So I'm super grateful to my parents for doing that. I feel like there are other ways they could have yeah. about doing that. But, <laughs> Put the training know. wheels on. <laughs> you know, every parent has their own uh, techniques. <laughs> <own> techniques. <laughs> Robert Dowdy Jr. and Tropic Thunder survive. Yeah, survive. <laughs> Real method acting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, but yeah, so uh, that would be an example of a kind of a tougher um, experience of going back and forth. I think the really hard one, though, was the reverse culture shock. Like, I was so convinced I was American, and then I was like in Japan for a long time, and then I came back to America to move here, like back permanently as an adult in my 30s, and then I got here, and I was like, what's a credit score? Yeah. Like, <laughs> why, why do I need this number so much? And like, wait, you guys charge me if I don't have money in my bank account that you guys took money out of and then you charge me again for it like I don't understand like what is an overdraft fee so I was like in total reverse culture shock when I moved back I think that was actually the America Uh traumatized me worse than Japan (laughs) (laughs) this place doesn't make sense (laughs) straight up Yeah. yeah wow um you said you got into journalism so I understand that moving between the states of Japan kind of helped develop your communication and observation skills. Were you always kind of interested in that route of like, I guess, journalism or writing or is that just something you kind of came upon? Oh, yeah, I wasn't really interested. I mean, I, um, you know, because I was back and forth a lot. At one point, my education just totally fell apart. Like, I'm like, 
dropped out of high school multiple times, eventually got my degree from somewhere, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Dropped out. It took me eight years to finish university. Um, I mean, I, I think I was really lucky to have a lot of people that kind of like see me and see like, man, this girl seems really smart, but she's all over the place, which is weird because today people are like, Mariko is so organized. Mm-hmm. Um, that was definitely a process. Mm-hmm. So for me, journalism was this lucky thing where this girl I knew had been had dropped off to dropped out of doing an article for the Japan Times and they just really needed a Japanese speaker um, and I had connections to the same user group or actually the label that she did because they were my clients at a club I worked at yeah. um, and Japan is notoriously like difficult when it comes to press um, so they agreed to let me conduct the interview even though I didn't have journalism skills um, and they just pre-wrote all the questions and then I went in there and I did the interview in Japanese and I translated it and then I remember I sent it to the editor and they're like, okay, we're going to send you your $50 or whatever it was. And I was like, cool, yeah, um, or 5,000 yen. And then they were like, actually, this is pretty good. And you want a little off script? I was like, yeah, I just thought like this was interesting. And I was wondering about this. And they're like, do you want to try to write something and we'll edit it? And I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. And so I did. Um, and I discovered editors are magical. Uh-huh. They will take like stuff that you're like, I don't know what they're going to do with this. And they'll just like, Make it work. Yeah. <laughs> so shout out to Sean McKenna for turning me into a writer because, man, that must have been a painful process yeah. for him. Um, yeah. And then the earthquake and tsunami hit uh, Japan. Mm. Um, and, 2014. Uh, 2011. Yeah, 2011. 11, March 2011, 311. And, um, you know, the Japan went to total chaos and it was crazy. And, uh, I started getting work as what they call a fixer, um, which is basically like um, crews that were flying in just for the stories would like just need someone to like had a driver's license and Japanese language skills to drive them out north. And I remember I was like in a van with like a bunch of like reporters from like all the world who had pulled their sources together to hire me and get the van. And then um, we were like, I think I forget how many miles we were for Fukushima. And they were like, oh, shit, it's gone nuclear Turn around. Uh, <laughs> and wow. they were like, That's terrifying. <laughs> I was like, are you guys sure? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're halfway there. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're so close, you guys. Let's just take a look. Yeah, too much <laughs> yeah. um, oh, so naive to the world. But they were like, no, we're turning around. So I was like, okay, cool. We turned around. They tossed it. Whatever yen they had at me, they were like, just take it all. Please drop us to the airport. Like, they wanted to get out of there. Wow. So they did not want to be there anymore. Wow. They wanted to get out. Mm-hmm. And um, so I took all their money. (laughs) 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 Um, And then they stayed in touch because they were like, hey, can you call this person? Can you check on this? Like, this is before Zoom. I was like Mm -hmm. Skyping all the time. Twitter was still Twitter. (laughs) Um, RIP Twitter. I'm so sad. Um, So I was like pulling like comments because Twitter was one of the few social media platforms the Japanese were really active on at the Mm -hmm. time. And it was open Mm -hmm. compared to Mixi, which is their version of Facebook, which Mm -hmm. is not open. And really hard to get an account on if you're not in Japan. Um, so I was like going through Twitter and combing through Twitter. And then about eight months later, I got called into an interview at Reuters. And um, funny story about that. So Reuters is like top notch. This is like the top of the top of mm-hmm. journalism world. I didn't know that going in. Um, I just went in because some, the advertisement literally said, <laughs> I wonder if I could find this advertisement. I probably have it uh, saved somewhere. Someone sent it to me. And that this kind of sounds like you. It was like, 
Are you okay with extreme heat, <laughs> extreme cold, carrying up to 45 pounds of equipment upstairs through sleet wow. and snow? Well, you might be okay to become a camera person for a camera person for uh, Reuters Television. It was something like that. Like they had written something wow. so extreme. like, yeah, <laughs> like like we're looking for people who don't complain. Basically, yeah, is yeah. what the, yeah. the job ad was doing, and I was like, oh. I can do all these things. I've had worse jobs. <laughs> so I like applied and went in and they give you a quiz. And me being me, I I, ser- I Google searched everything. I was like, oh, I don't know the answer. Let me search on my phone. I don't know the answer. I searched on my phone. They didn't find out until like six months after they hired me that I'd done that. They're like, just so you know, normally like people are supposed to know off top of their head the answers. So funny. And I was like, oh, but what if they don't know the answer? <laughs> what do you guys do? And they're like, we, we Google search it. And yeah. I was like, so <laughs> what have yeah. I done wrong? Yeah. <laughs> um, they were like, fair Thanks. point. <laughs> um, like, now we know, remembered why we hired you. <laughs> yeah. She's good. She's a smart one. Yeah. <laughs> She's good. So, yeah, I think the produ- senior producer at that time, um, a wonderful gentleman named uh, Olivia Fabre, after being through the earthquake and tsunami and having all these um, expats who basically fled the country and... I think just it was like a really tough time in Japan in general because of, you know, um, this is pre-pandemic. We thought we thought it couldn't get worse, but apparently <laughs> there's many rock bottom levels. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think he just was like, you know what, maybe just we take someone who knows nothing. We just train them and mm. we mold them. And that's basically what my coworkers did. Wow. <laughs> they took a blank slate mm. and I got trained by some of the some of the best journalists in the world at that time. I was really lucky. So, um, yeah, I, I would say it was. I would say it was luck, but at this time in my life, I've just realized there's no thing as luck. You you obtain all these skills throughout your life that if you're in the right moment, you can apply them in a way that just like makes the opportunity make sense for you, right? Um, I'm not sure at any other moment in my life, even now, like being an experienced journalist, if I could have done what I did that day to get the job, you know? It was just the person I was in that moment that made sense for the opportunity available. Nice. Life's a trip. Mm. <laughs> it's so interesting. What were some skills you would say you developed in that process of them training you up? Man, um, there were lots of skills I learned. I mean, I learned all of the basics of journalism. They taught me how to operate a camera, edit video, um, write a script, uh read agency files, go through archivals. I mean, I learned everything. Um, I was super blessed to be paid to learn. Um, But I think the most important things I learned were really just how to organize information. Like Reuters is global. Like they're taking information about Japan and sharing it to the rest of the world Um, and considering how few global agencies exist out of Reuters and Associated Press and Agence France, all of whom I've worked for, um, you have a lot of power about how like the world can see you mm. and the Im- images and stereotypes and information you're conveying. Um, and it's really important to like not only do that well, but you have to, in a breaking news situation, have all your info organized in a way you can pull from it really fast mm. so that, you know, like, of course, we'd all like to spend, like, a week working on something, but most of the time we have, like, two hours. And, like, am I per- do I have a great resource library? Do I have all of my bookmarks organized in a way where I can quick tab to information about this city or this person or this prefecture in a way that um, I'm able to, like, quickly react and turn something around? And that was something that was really great to learn from an agency 
that you know has been building out like digital asset libraries for you know decades and has like a global network and that's something that you know uh, when you get to see, you can't. It's like ah, I've seen the Matrix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seems like that's yeah. So crazy. All the zeros and ones, yeah. <laughs> just like blocking oh, <laughs> uh. <laughs> bullets and stuff. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So did you have to like go into like an office, or how was that? Like you're on the field and also like in it. Yeah, so there was an office. It was this beautiful um, office on the 30th floor in Akasaka Mitsuke in um, kind of the edge of little to- or edge of the to- little Tokyo, the edge of Ginza in Tokyo and Akasaka, and not too far from Roppongi. Um, and uh, it was a gorgeous office that I was almost never in because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, most of the time I was in the field, mm-hmm. um, and we usually file from the field because the turnaround has to be so fast mm-hmm. that you basically have to go shoot it. I mean, sometimes. It would be a press conference where, let's say, some global Japanese corporation is laying off thousands of people or tens of thousands of people nation, like globally. Um, I would be editing while the press conference is still happening. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. there's our soundbite. I'd be editing, but we'd still keep rolling because we're like, what if something else? You're like half listening to what else is happening. Whoa. You're meanwhile trying to file that first soundbite to be the first one on the wire so that all of your clients get it you're trying to beat ap basically mm. um and you're beef <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're like i'm gonna file it faster than ap and i see ap next to me and i'm like ha the race is on and we like all know each other so we're like ha yeah, yeah. i remember one time like i saw some like uh you like when you see people having like internet struggles or like cabling or something you're just like i'm gonna yeah. win the game today <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> couldn't be me yeah. yeah i was more organized and prepared yeah. today <laughs> um but yeah so I, I I like I learned a lot of things on that job, um, but I think being organized was one of the most important things because I was not an organized person before that. Mm-hmm. Like my total chaos, and now I feel like that's why I say curator chaos because like I know what it's like to live that lifestyle and what it takes to organize it. But I also know like it just makes everything yeah it steps everything up when you can organize your time man- time like a lot better and resources. For sure, it seems like it. How was that? Did that was that sense of urgency of having to like basically you know win the race in a sense was that overwhelming at times i am an adrenaline junkie mm. like a hundred percent like i definitely um <laughs> love to like uh participate in all kinds of risky behavior before that i'm actually sometimes i feel like journalism was really great to get into because i got that high on, nice. a, def- on a daily basis wow. um because it's such a rush you uh. know it's such a rush you're like man it's all happening right now oh my gosh i'm finally and then unlike some other fields i talked to friends who are in fashion and like after the fashion show's over they mm. have a they have like a down mm. where they like the high is gone but with breaking news we get the high every single day um especially when you're living in japan after you know three uh, a global crisis like 311 mm. um which you know is continued to impact the nation and globally both markets as well as like politics yeah. and so you know i could have the high seven days a week if i wanted yeah. um so is it mm-hmm. so running like at that high level all the time like mm-hmm. how is that like when it's time to wind down you go home at the yeah. end of the night i mean is your brain just going like did yeah. you have like how do you balance that to like yeah. or unless you're always like you know, I always tell people like I so I work with entrepreneurs and small business owners now and I always tell people like I'm pretty sure all of them are or would be mental cases if they had not discovered entrepreneurship. Like these are not people who could have a 9 to 5 job. Like mm. they need their brains to be occupied. And I feel like the same way. Like 
I feel like I'm really lucky that I found something that occupies my mind on so many different levels because I feel like in moments where I have like, you know, gone through like bouts of grief um, or, you know, had like experienced uh, really tough times where I could like my mind would go in another direction of mm -hmm. all the different things and scenarios of what could go horribly. Mm -hmm. But when your mind is active to think about all the ways you can solve something mm -hmm. and all the scenarios and you're playing those out, mm -hmm. that's obviously a much better direction yeah. to be going yeah, in. Sure. Um, so it's hard though, because sometimes I'm just like, I need to like wind down. I need to like learn to sit in calm and quiet and silence when you have a brain like that you're like oh this has been 10 minutes this is, <laughs> <laughs> this is a lot i need a new problem to solve yeah feeling ready to go so, uh, long enough relaxing yeah <laughs> back to it back to it to the game so how is it um when you i guess traveling globally for you know your reporting or what you were doing how was how was that the first time that you had an assignment that you, you know, traveled to another country for? And then I guess, how was the experience for you typically? Oh, um, I don't remember actually, like, the first time I reported from another country. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure. It's probably such a long time ago. I would assume it was somewhere in, in, in Asia. Um, but I think like one of the defining moments for me is, um, I worked on this documentary that never got released. Um, it was commissioned by an organization, which I actually, I guess I will name them cause I don't like them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I was commissioned, um, by an organization called Vice, mm. um, to work on a documentary about, um, b-boys in India, specifically in an area called, um, uh, Dharavi, which is in Mumbai. It's really famous because of the film um, Some Dog Millionaire, mm. which is kind of loosely based on that area. Um, it's like the biggest slum in Asia. Mm. And um, I got the privilege to be in that neighborhood for about two weeks, uh, following these kids around who had been introduced to the world of um, b-boy and b-girl dancing. And we're just kind of taking it to their in their own direction and their own way and building community around it. And it was so cool and I got to film them. I traveled with um, a friend from Japan. And then I remember I was so excited about the footage and I came back and they're like, man, these kids are super clean looking. And I was like, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I was like, what did you expect? And I guess like their image of like slums was like the people that lived in slums mm. wouldn't be clean. Mm. And I was like, uh yeah they're really clean they have any other shots that kind of show like the more the grittiness Wild. and i was like i mean they're literally b-boying like yeah. across like railroad ties like what else do you guys want <laughs> yeah, <that's crazy. laughs> I, I was so lost um and then uh made a really tough decision to return all the money that they had fronted to mm. them um obviously lost money on that because i didn't want to work on it in the way that they did and yep. it was like something i went back and forth on a lot but um i had a mentor who said you know i know it's really hard but now that I'll, you'll never have to make a hard decision like that again because you know where your line is Thanks. and i think that was probably one of the big defining moments because i had like i said earlier you have a lot of power about the story you're telling about people and how people will see them and I remember when the kids said to me, they had gotten pulled into like a Red Bull commercial because these kids gotten super popularized by some article that went out by, um, I think the Telegraph or something. And the kids were like, man, 
I just want people to know that we work. Like, we work really hard. We work. Like, I have a job. We work. Mm. And it was so important for the for, for them that people knew that, like, they had jobs and they work. And I was like, man, like, yeah. some stereotype has made you feel like that is the thing you have to emphasize. Mm. And I don't want to be a part of, mm-hmm. you know, making you feel like you don't contribute because of the way that we're going to portray you in this yeah. documentary. Wow. So, yeah, it was a tough decision. Um, yeah, I definitely had business partners that were unhappy with me, um, but I don't regret it at yeah. all. Nice. Keeping that integrity. I think that's, yeah, it's so interesting when you're dealing with something as valuable as information because there's a lot of power in that. So kudos to you for like <laughs> standing by, like, because that, that, especially when you hear Kitu saying, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, when work, I have jobs. Yeah. It, I think that's something that, like, we, like, if you're not in the field, you normally think about or deal with about, like, having that power of portrayal mm-hmm. of individuals, you know, like, like, if you're not like a journalist or something like that, because we look at media all the time. And then I know in like a class, we were told about biases and stuff, but like, that's that's really hard when it's like right in front of you and you're kind of like you have to make a hard defined decision no yeah i mean i i know like i mean i have my own criticisms of media and there's like very good there's a lot of reasons why i don't work in like large media or mass media anymore but um there are a lot of really great journalists that i know and i was privileged to work with and be trained by them where they like go through like an ethics dilemma on a daily base and i remember my first team at reuters we would like go back and forth like is this the right way to do this should we do this in the ways is there something we're missing from the story especially ones that we knew were sensitive Mm -hmm. even some that weren't we would just it was a great team it was a brilliant team i got to work with like early on and i think that helped me too in the decision making process Mm -hmm. right sometimes you don't you know something's wrong but you don't know the process you're supposed to go to to like figure out the right path or decision to make and Mm -hmm. so to be with people that we bounce ideas around to go through that decision-making process together really helped me in my decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, today I tell people, like, you know, um, it's really easy for me to make decisions quickly because if someone, like, presents me with something, I always ask myself, like, does this serve my community and is it going to make someone's life better? And mm-hmm. the answer isn't yes to both those questions. For me, the answer is always no. Um, and that makes it super easy to choose what projects I work on, who I'm going to work with, what I, what I decide to agree with or endorse. Um, and I have been super grateful ever since because when your mind is working in a million directions all the time, you question yourself a lot mm. um, and you have to have something to stand by so that you can not, you know, you can sleep at night, to be honest. Yeah. I'm glad the dipped podcast passed both those questions. Yeah, yeah thank <laughs> like, you. I'm, yeah. Like, I'm, listening to, I'm listening to this and I'm like, I'm like, Wow, that's a lot of analysis. I was just like, "Hey, you you want to want to be on this?" Just like, uh, want to be on my pod? <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's it's usually just like, a, it's just like, do you, do you have previous episodes? What you do? Like, which is all the, all this information, and and I'm I'm glad like I'm hearing the like the steps behind it because you know yeah. you, you you had to make those like. Yeah, especially now. You know, it's been like a really hard thing for me to accept like leadership roles as of late or like I like being behind the scenes. I also feel like weird um, that I get praised a lot for my work because there's so many people that do the work besides me. And I also don't want to like be front and center for a lot of things. Um, But also at the same time, 
I actually went through leadership coaching because I was like really like mm. going back and forth on this um, as I was being invited to speak at more events or talk about what's happening with small business in particular mm. in places like Little Tokyo. Um, and I felt like, you know, to be a great advocate, you really have to, you know, think carefully about what you represent and where you co-sign and who you endorse and how you speak about people or mm -hmm. events because, um, you know, you might, you have a lot of power. I mean, I only I have like less than a thousand followers on Instagram, but then you feel you realize in other areas mm -hmm. like you could be talking to a person who makes a big decision based on just one thing you say mm -hmm. because they look at you as a subject matter ex expert on that. Yeah. And that's like a scary thing to me mm -hmm. um, that, you know, a lot of people don't recognize the responsibility they have every time they open their mouth. Mm -hmm. Um, and they talk about anything. Even you talk about it. I, I tell people all the time, even when you talk about a person who's not in the room and they can't stand mm. up for themselves, like you are now speaking for them mm -hmm. uh, when you speak about them. And that feels for like me a really unfair situation every single time. Mm -hmm. So we should always give the person who's not in the room the benefit of the doubt. And I feel like that's with everything. And so okay. advocacy has been a really hard thing for me to like accept as like my job and a title mm. um but i feel like um it's something that if you don't accept the responsibility for you're are gonna make things worse so mm. it's hard because you're like yeah. ah, like oh, i don't want to say i'm this or that yeah. and you're just like oh well, am i ready am i the right person i was asking am i the right person for this <laughs> like should i be the person for this i feel so nervous all the time it's a hard thing to accept but yeah. i always tell my owners like they are in leadership roles, and I feel like I push them so much to accept being in the spotlight that you have to kind of, everyone should accept that they're like, they're the lead in their own life. And so we're all in a spotlight. Um, and so we all should like, you know, always think about that when we, we talk. Truth. And how was, uh, how long did it take you to kind of develop that clarity? Oh my God, my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like even with asking yourself the two questions on like, is this something I want to, yeah, I would say those two questions are something I've definitely developed in like the last 10 years, mm. um, in particular in the last three. Mm. The pandemic, working as a small business consultant was obviously like a nightmare. And I got to a point where I was like, I don't say turning people away, but just so many people were asking for help and not that many Japanese speakers. Mm. And so I really had to figure out like how I was going to prioritize my time, right? Um, and I feel a lot better ever since. I was super, super stressed out. like. Mm four years ago, mm. uh, grieving all the good decisions I didn't make. Mm. <laughs> um, and uh, and now I, I I suffer with that a lot less. That's, That's amazing. Good. Good yeah. What was that transition like um, going from journalism to working with being a community advocate and a small business, you know? <laughs> yeah, like deep consultant. Like the high of like journalism and then you're like kind of the day-to-day -day is a lot different yeah right? that transition you know. yeah I mean it's it's I don't know like the right way to put this but like you know I went from like international news obviously and mm -hmm. traveling around the world and now I you know mostly focus on like a two by two block radius <laughs> um but I think for me the biggest the hardest transition was is before I was like 
they call it a helicopter journalist. Like you basically just are dropped into people's like worst moments, and then you leave. Oh yeah. <laughs> then you go and drop to someone else's <laughs> worst <laughs> moment, and then you ha- you you dip right. Yeah. And whereas this work are, it's much more about long term commitments. Mm. I, I like I have so much respect for people who do like documentary film work and like work on a documentary that spans like a ten year period. Because yeah. I'm like, man, the amount of like emotional exhaustion to dedicate yourself to those people and that subject, like. But now, like, here I am five years later still working with some of the same businesses. And I'm like, it's rewarding, Mm -hmm. you know, because once you some time has passed and you have that perspective of time, Mm -hmm. you get to see, like, the growth, Mm -hmm. the change, the genesis, Mm -hmm. the evolution. And I mean, I'm rocking two brands that I love so much right now. I'm wearing like uprisers here and Mm -hmm. I got a Bunko Doge T-shirt underneath. And just watching the two of them in the last five years has Mm -hmm. just been I mean, they're basically moving at the speed of light as far as I'm concerned in terms of how fast they're growing and how quickly they're adapting. Amazing. And would you like to speak a little bit more on yeah. those particular two? <laughs> so we might as well. So we got the merch. We're actually in Bunkado right now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, oh, the great reveal. Speak of the, <laughs> the devil. Uh, there's this amazing t shirt that Dane, who's downstairs, and you know, shout I'm going to shout out all day long. I actually made a sticker of Dane. I wish I had brought it. Shout out <laughs> Dane. Yeah, shout out to Dane. Shout yeah. out Bunkado. <laughs> Open on the ground. <laughs> start Dane. jumping. Dane. It's like, Yeah. podcast you do here. It's so funny. People are like, do you have favorites? Oh, you're probably not supposed to have favorites. I was like, no, I have a favorite. His name is Dane Ishibashi. He's over at Bunkado. No, but for real, like, Dane is definitely someone that I think I look at as kind of like the model of what things I want to accomplish and how I want them to work. I mean, you look at someone who was lit, who's go say like fifth generation Japanese American, like left the state to go to school to, to work, was out um, in Oregon doing cool things with Nike, and then came back and I delivered meals with Dane side by side for our seniors in our low income housing units around little Tokyo for you know, over 60 weeks, uh, three days a week. And um, and then we also worked with his auntie here to basically build an e-commerce website, which is now like something like 20% of their revenue. Beautiful. Um, they're on Shopify. Mm-hmm. And as a business that has been around for, you know, like a three quarters of a century plus, um, it's pretty awesome. And I, I, I love seeing like how someone's identity can be shaped by this neighborhood Mm. um and also how people are connecting especially younger generations i work with a team of volunteers i call them like small biz hype squad Mm. um Mm. one of those groups within that is called the little tokyo ambassadors which Mm. are community community members who are paired with um a legacy business in little tokyo for three to six months to support to support marketing mostly digital marketing and I have kids as young as like 15 years old that sign up to volunteer. So cool. Um, one kid is 19. And I do like, you know, in a kind of like a survey when they come in, learn where their interests mm. are, why they want to work in the neighborhood. And it's interesting because especially the kids that are Japanese American, they say, 
I know this neighborhood's really important to my parents and my grandparents. They talk about it all the time. Yeah. They talk about the war. But I don't feel particularly connected to it. But I know it's an important part of my identity. So I thought this project might help me explore it. And I'm like, wow, you're 19 yeah. years old and you yeah. figured that all out? Right? <laughs> it took me like another 10 plus years. Yeah. <laughs> it's impressive. Um, but yeah, so I think like for me, like um, getting to work with businesses that are so integral to the identity of a community and to a group of people and to a moment in history, mm. but then trying to explore like where that goes next um, is amazing. And obviously Bunkudo is, you know, been around for a very, very, very long time, longer than all of us have been alive. Um, but Upriser is the other brand that I'm rocking, founded by Michelle Hanabusa. That's another example of an amazing Japanese-American um, of Okinawan descent um, who founded a brand. Um, we actually worked on She was a member of my incubator right across the street at 341, what was called FSN at the time, um, along with four other brands. And she popped up in the neighborhood for about 40 days with uh, her brand. And we experimented with a lot of things. What does community mean? What does it mean to be working with community? What does part true partnership with a nonprofit look like? Or... Um, community members, what does influencer really mean when you're talking about community-based and um, watching where she's taking that, you know, in the last five years and how it's actually getting her picked up by brands like PacSun and Nike and Netflix now. She's about to go into a crazy year. Um, Makes me feel like, okay, maybe there can be a place where you can be a for-profit business, still Mm -hmm. be mission-based, still make money, Mm -hmm. and still do really cool things. There you go. Um, And I lucky I get to pick and choose my clients now, yeah. nice. but um, you know, it. I I love doing it. I'm really blessed. I I can't say enough good things about my life. I just stumble into great yeah. luck and opportunity. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's awesome. I n- yeah. understand the feeling. <laughs> um, so when did you come back from? Because you said one of the hardest transitions you made was the last transition coming from Japan to living back in the States. How long have you been back in the States since then? So I started working in the U.S. in 2000, I think it was late 2012 or early 2013, but I wasn't living here. I was still in Japan. Um, I was coming here to work for Reuters back and forth for a few years. First, I was like helping to cover the Oscars or I was filling in like backfill. Um, when they were understaffed because I have U.S. citizenship, so they don't have to worry about like working papers. Mm. So I was like a, a good staffer to pull over to their L.A. bureau. Um, then I was working with a Japanese broadcaster um, that had an office based out here, but mostly I was traveling a lot around Central and South America. Um, and so I think I really didn't like permanently really moved back to LA until 2018 when okay. I finally signed a lease. Yeah. <laughs> um, like a long term yeah, one. I wasn't like, just like <laughs> Airbnb. <laughs> yeah. <locked> exactly. <laughs> um, and then I started doing this work in um, Little Tokyo. Um, at the time I was a full-time employee at Little Tokyo Service Center, really just hired to run this incubator program and do some educational programming. Um, I was planning on quitting in 2019 <laughs> um, and then I uh, took on the whole pandemic with, you know, um, all of our small businesses. But I think for me, the hardest thing was, you know, just deciding I was going to commit to living in America. Yeah. Like I always gave myself this out for years because I kept going back and forth. I was like, I can 
Just one one day. Just just, 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 just throw your desk. Delete all your emails. I'm gone. I know. It's so hard. And like when you're in that mind state, you never fully fully commit to anything, which is why breaking news suits suits me because suited me at the time because I didn't have to commit to anything. Mm. Um, But uh, yeah, I was like, okay. I'm gonna do this. Mm. It's a very vulnerable moment. Yeah. Because then you're like, committed. you're committed, Except and then the you're risk. saying to people like, you can't like, say like, oh, I'm here but not here, but oh, I might be around next weekend, but you know, if you're cool, if you're busy, I'll be around. But if not, that's just the visitor. You know, yeah. when you're the visitor. Yeah. I've only got so much time. Can't <laughs> escape. <laughs> can't yeah. escape when you're here all the time. It reminds me of that one time when we we got tacos and then you saw like a burrito. And you're like, I don't know if I could commit to a yeah. whole burrito. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I was like, that that describes all of LA. Yeah. Yeah. Commitment yeah. issues are like what burrito meat you want. Yeah. Like, nah, I'll just I'll just have two tacos. Yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, being the visitor, you like, I don't have so much time. I can't like you know give it to everyone, mm-hmm. but. You know, you always have the out of just like dipping. So yeah, that's that's really. But I'm glad you made that decision to like stay and kind of like. Have I? No, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the totem pole, like in Inceptions. Like, is it real? I don't yeah, know. yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> is it? I don't know. Down. Yeah. I'm not even here right now. Like, it's yeah. just. Uh, I think that goes back to the origin story stuff we were talking about earlier. When that moment when I was yeah. like this outsider in Japan as this like mixed kid who like couldn't speak and I'm just like observing you know so you're like in this really in-between space and I think I just like was like I became comfortable with it and I was like oh I don't really I'm not really part of anything Mm -hmm. so nothing can ever hurt me because Mm -hmm. it can't like Mm -hmm. be taken from me right because I'm not a part of anything fully so you're not fully committed to it Mm -hmm. so it can't bother you when it's not there anymore Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. Which I think is common for a lot of kids that move around a lot or are suddenly moved around a lot. Like I have military friends who, you know, we all have our commitment issues. But I think it's because you're like, oh, as long as I don't commit to anything, like it's not going to hurt when it's gone. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it was the vulnerability of like, like actually mentally committing to yeah. like people and places yeah. and apartment leases. Yeah, <laughs> apartment <laughs> leases. <laughs> that was the hardest thing for me. I And I've gone right back to like, I'm on a month-to-month lease all over again. Yeah. I was like, ooh, I did it. I tried it. Yeah, <laughs> let's, I like let's that. Let's do the hybrid version yeah. of committed. You want me to be here for six months? Yeah. I want, I don't, I want people to know that I live in this space, have my address. Are there... Because uh, you'd lived in Japan for quite a while, are there like particular things you miss about, I guess, Japan or Japanese culture in particular? Are you like egg salad, konbini sandwiches? Public transportation. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, I just miss being able to get around anywhere I wanted in a clean and safe manner mm. so easily until between 5 a.m. and 1 a.m. <laughs> like, I, oh man, like. I didn't realize how wonderful the convenience of being able to move around with your own free will was until I moved to a place that is just so expensive to have that level of freedom. Um, And in Japan, I really, really take it for granted. We have an amazing transit system nationwide, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's really not that expensive to even go to like a city like Osaka from Tokyo. Like $100 one way, yeah, it's expensive, but when you think about how expensive it is even to go from like LA to San Diego when you think about gas and parking and yeah. time it's like oh but in Japan I can go to Osaka on like a day trip because yeah. of our bullet train system and 
you know, not only like not use too much time, but it's not that expensive either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really, really, really miss the freedom that public transportation gave me. I feel that. Yeah, even uh, I was traveling overseas um, in Europe a couple months ago, and that's just the one thing that stood out to me. It almost creates more of a communal feel to the city and places that are there too because it's so easy to get around and so easy to like meet with people. And also, you have a lot more elderly who can still move around the city and still live their active lives because... One, there's a lot of benches or the metro is just easily accessible while in a lot of places in America. That is not the case. Yeah. <laughs> You're like challenge. isolated in your car, trying to get places. Yeah. Like. like I like to think of LA as like just a large cubicle city where you live in your cubicle apartment, you drive in your cubicle vehicle, and then you go to your office, which is also a cubicle. Mm-hmm. And, then you, you, and then you have, you, you, and then on the weekends you drive to one place and then you don't go anywhere else yeah. unless you can walk it. So yeah. it's like you're isolated from so many people and, and that like um, great equalizer of public transportation where you have like high and low people traveling in the same tube. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it kind of like makes you more cognizant of like, you know, the the world around you, your environment. Yeah, in the U.S., I feel like you have to make a very dynamic and active choice to interact with other people. Mm. Where in Japan, it's like passively thrust upon you mm. because peop- it's it's very equitable. You know, people who are millionaires and own companies. I've worked for CEOs that ride public transit and celebrities mm. who ride public transit in Japan, and people who are just like the salary man who you know makes like two thousand an hour and. Goes back and forth to his cubicle, yeah. <laughs> but we're also riding side by side in a train, also. Mm. Um, and I think those spaces are really important, um, even if we have to force people into them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> jam them in the tube, <laughs> rush hour. Yeah, I think it definitely changes like a psyche in a lot of ways that it's just like really hard to articulate because it's just when it's part of your lifestyle, it's it's just something that you just acknowledge mm. right that oh all these people have different walks of life and we all share a space together that's publicly accessible to everyone and everyone utilizes and then you realize that that's like not the case in other Brilliant. countries mm-hmm. yeah is there uh or you can... oh i was gonna um say uh well i was gonna change from public transportation to something that, that i also think is very important to your life um in our previous episode as we were looking at like clips and stuff you're the person who introduced Ed to Little Tokyo Fight Club. Correct me uh, if wrong. Am I? I? I think so. Did that's, he say that? That's what he said. <laughs> I, he said, well, <laughs> the caption said Marco, but I'm pretty sure it's Mariko. <laughs> right? I think so. I don't, I don't know. I'm not, not too sure. That's but. so interesting. I mean, it's possible because um, Edmund and I met in Florida that is at an academy story. that I trained at in Florida, in Orlando, under... Um, Jazari Matuda and Bruno Malfassini. Shout out to them for, you know, teaching me so much so early in my <laughs> jujitsu <laughs> um, journey. And uh, Edmund was in town for a competition. Um, and a lot of people were visiting and hanging at the academy for competition. And we started chatting. And I think we started following on social media. I'm pretty sure I was like trying to like pump up Little Tokyo Fight Club because one of my best friends, James Choi, mm. who also owns Cafe Dulce, Yoboseo, Nudes, a bunch of amazing um, spaces and mm. brands, um, is also the owner and founder of Little Tokyo Fight Club. 
And I support everything that James does because he's been such an amazing supporter of me. And I it was just like DMing everyone I knew and trying to like what little like credibility mm-hmm. I have in the jujitsu world. <laughs> I was trying to like leverage so to like wait. support yeah. my like little white belt is like <laughs> being like, I'll get the black belts in. Yeah. <laughs> like only on a white belt would have that level of audacity yeah. to think that they had that kind of like ability pull. and pull. <laughs> like it's like, this is why we smash you every yeah, week. Gotta, so gotta drive that, <laughs> that ego yeah. down a few stops. But, um, but yeah, so it's it's definitely possible because I do think that um, I probably was one of the first people who talked with him about it. Um, but Edmund's been around for a long oh, time. Yeah. He's been a black belt for <laughs> oh, like yeah. a decade and a half. So I'm pretty sure he would have eventually found his way <laughs> to Little Tokyo Fight Club. But maybe I was the first person to aggressively DM him over and over <laughs> again yeah. to come through. Um, but that's pretty cool. Uh, verbal jujitsu. You know? Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> submitted. It was like, okay. I'm gonna see him after this. Yeah. So I'm gonna ask. Yeah. Like, did you mention my name in a yeah. podcast? Did you name drop me? <laughs> yeah. he, did. he did. I swear. I, I have the caption to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it says Marco, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it's Marco. No, no, no. That's Mar- Marco tapped me. Yeah, Marco. <laughs> Marco yeah. I definitely have never. Edmund like, <laughs> is one of those black belts that like does not care. I mean, maybe it's just me, but like he does not care that you're a white belt. He's like, you're gonna learn today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking that I, arm. I saw that. I saw them at Little Tokyo Fight Club. Hold this guy with his head like, like, cr- like his legs are here and he's crushed. And he just wrote him out for 45 <laughs> seconds that way. And I was just like, I don't think he can breathe. But, <laughs> you know, he got struck. And he just like sat there and just like rocked back and forth. And he couldn't do anything. And yeah. Like, yeah. Was, Tied him up. No, it was, it was the most. Yeah, I think I once like ambit. I don't know why I do this. I'm so convinced I have a wrestler inside of me. Oh. And like I didn't grow up doing any grappling. But I started doing jujitsu like three years ago. And I am convinced that I have a D1 wrestler inside yeah. of me somewhere. Oh, it's and so I am. Like I am gonna nail this double eight blast double one of these days. I'm like tossing myself at people, and then um, I remember one of my friends. His name is George, and he has a black belt in judo and jujitsu, and he was also like a Pan American champion oh, and wow. would trial for like the Olympics in so Brazil. Oh, and I remember the first time I trained with him, I started standing, <laughs> and I was just like. I grabbed him. He's like, oh, you're going to stand up with me. And I was oh, like, yeah. in my yeah. mind, I was like, oh, you're going to see, like, I got strong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm pretty tough. <laughs> you're going to find out. I remember I went for the single. <laughs> I grabbed it. And he literally, he judo flipped. I saw oh, the God. ground, <laughs> the sky, the ground again. And then... I was underneath. <laughs> and then everyone, I could hear everyone go, ooh, oh, oh, <laughs> in the background. But, and, and, and I don't know why I stood right up above the thing all over again. And I was like, I'll get it this time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's wrong with me. There's someone inside of me. There's like a little person that's just like, I got this. Just so much imagination. <laughs> so you like jujitsu over the course of your long and varied career has there been any other like either uh like when you're in japan for example um like passions or hobbies that you would do to fill the time when you weren't you know catching breaking news (laughs) um i mean before i was in breaking news i worked in a lot of clubs Mm. i used to love I don't know if partying is a proper hobby, mm. but I used to club like four, five, six days a week. Um, I love dancing. <laughs> I'm not a very good dancer. Um, I tell people these days, 
I'm a really good artist mm. as long as I only draw dinosaurs. Mm. Like I'm well, very, that's, very, that's, very confident in my cool. ability well, to draw dinosaurs. Really? That's cool. There's nothing else. I even started an Instagram account called Doodle Dinosaur. I like that. Um, I, oh. I, it doesn't have that many pictures up like. because then I started feeling like I needed to like think through. <laughs> <laughs> you just got excited one day. Like let's let's do this. I was like maybe I need to think this through a little bit more. But every day I like draw a picture of a dinosaur. So I guess that's a hobby. That's, that's cool. Um, What's your favorite dinosaur? Oh, easily. Like, so I really, really, really love the Brachiosaurus. Mm. Um, I had a, a pet Brachiosaurus Sarah? as a kid. What? Um, well, my sister had a Brachiosaurus. So, and she used to tell me, like, I couldn't come into our bedroom because the Brachiosaurus is in there and there wasn't enough room for both of us. <laughs> and I would throw, like, fits. Like, I was like, she wanted oh. me into the room. Long neck. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh. Gotcha. Like, she wanted me in the room. Oh, little foot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It looks like a brontosaurus, basically, yeah. Yeah. but longer. Yeah. Oh, longer. Um, but yeah, nice. so I was, like, so envious of this pet Brachiosaurus. <laughs> oh. I'd be so upset that I couldn't go into my own bedroom because wow. the Brachiosaurus was currently <laughs> occupying the space. I got a question before we move ahead. Is this a physical object or is this like an imaginary thing? 100% imaginary. Uh, I like, like it was like a stuffed animal. No. Nope. Like, you know, it was just me. No. no okay, th this is great. This is even better. <laughs> I love this. This is. Imagine. I get so upset at my sister. She's like, you can't come in here. Yeah. You're like, but I want to see this. It's like, dinosaur. there's not enough room for all three of us. <laughs> and I'd be like, no, like, I want to come in and hang out too. <laughs> like, doesn't make sense. Like, <laughs> a dinosaur takes up so much space. You're not gonna fit in here too. And in my in my childhood mind, I was like, that makes total sense. Yeah. But like, I want to hang like FOMO. Like, yeah. I was like, why don't I get to hang out with the, the pet brachiosaurus? That's like, funny. Um, but so because of that, like, I love brachiosaurus, but it's a very difficult relationship in my head. Yeah. <laughs> so it's complicated. I think triceratops. That's pretty um, fire. Triceratops oh. is mostly because of like you know, Land of the Lost. Yeah. Sarah. Yeah. 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 So, nice. mm -hmm. yeah. classic. Did, did the Brachiosaurus have a, a name? Man, I know it did, and I someone asked me this the other day, and I can't remember. <laughs> I'll have to ask my sister sometime, but I'm sure it had a name because she named everything. So um, she had like a million stuffed animals, and somehow every single one of them a name that never changed, and she could always remember. And people were like amazed. They would like to quiz her. Mm -hmm. like, What's this one's name? What's this one's name? This one's name. <laughs> she was like, that's the gang. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know why you guys are testing about my friend's name. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. These are my best friends. <laughs> what are you talking about? Nice. So. That's great. Um, I guess what were some. Well, I'll ask a question about challenges. So what were some, because I want to ask, because now it's. A whole separate world of challenges working with business owners now too so i guess i'll start with the journalism side what were some challenges for you i guess uh kind of developing your career in journalism and then after you answer that what were some challenges that you've experienced working with business owners here in Man, like it sounds terrible, but I was so lucky when I was a news journalist. I had amazing mentors. I worked with great teams. Like I was paid well. Like I I just was guided every step of the way and got so much support and learned so much. And I, I really can't say that I – I'm sure there were things like at the time that I felt were challenges. But I look back, all I can see is just like it was all green – green mm -hmm. lights all the way through That's you know awesome. and especially knowing 
now and pers- having the perspective of time to be able to know what other people's journalism aspirations look like or careers. I'm especially cognizant of how lucky I am that everyone stumbles into a Roy- role at Reuters mm. with no journalism experience um, or very little. And so in that respect, I think um, I just was so lucky. And I was so hungry to work at that time. Mm. Like I took everything. Like I never turned anything down. Mm. I would just go at it with 100%. And I had such supportive and warm colleagues they never made me feel like i was ever failing it was like it was literally it sounds so corny but we were always learning mm. you know even i came back and i look i remember now looking back i didn't really know how to say that, like exposure works or nd filters and i thought i was supposed to have tons of zebras on the screens and like <laughs> i was like over like over nd filtering yeah. and like under and i was like i had totally unusable footage um <laughs> because i didn't understand that and no one ever said oh my god like what were you thinking and this is terrible we can't use it they were like oh sometimes like a reshoot is necessary and this is how you go about doing it and And it was so supportive and um, yeah it just made for a great learning environment and when you're in a great learning environment with like amazing colleagues you just you don't have challenges you just have problems that need to Mm. be solved and I appreciate that so much entrepreneurship and small business on the other hand <laughs> that's been a rocky You're journey like, <laughs> let me tell you yeah yeah a lot like the opposite situation where i've kind of struggled with like uh, a collaborative learning environment in the beginning and you know didn't really find the mentors as easily and found my ship in mentorship roles without feeling like i had someone to talk to um you know and then when the pandemic hit like just the biggest challenge for me was um, as someone who's definitely like an empath, you know, you're just taking on everyone's feelings and emotions and like worst moments uh, that have no solutions day after day, month after month. And, you know, financial problems are like really tough. You know, the strongest person who suddenly is like looking at bankruptcy or credit card bills piling up. I mean, I understand why people get depressed when that stuff happens. It's hard, you know? People are like, oh, you know, be positive. I'm like, hey, have you ever had $70,000 of debt just hanging out of your head with no, like, foreseeable end, plus, like, no incoming revenue possibly ever in the near future because everything is so uncertain. We have no control of anything. Mm -hmm. And then let me know how, where you find the the silver lining because it's not going to happen today. This is one of those things that we're going to need a lot more time to process. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was really hard. And then, you know, I obviously lost uh, colleagues and and owners to illness, stress, Mm -hmm. COVID, suicide, um, and that was a lot of grief to carry. I was worried for a period of time that I might be depressed mm. and then, cause I was so sad. Mm. And then I got therapy and the um, therapist I have, amazing woman, she basically was like helping me understand the difference between grief and depression. And she's a lot of times people don't really understand that what they feel is they're not depressed, like clinically depressed. Mm. They're, they're experiencing grief and grief is a natural human emotion mm. that we go through when we're going through any kind of loss or change. Mm. Um, that once you learn to process, you can accept it more readily. Mm-hmm. And so learning how to process grief, that was a huge challenge mm-hmm. because you just, all these emotions. And then one person, um, I remember I was chatting with her about it, like a community elder. She was like, I was like telling her, I just feel sad. And sometimes I don't know what's going on. I have all these emotions. And she was like, Michael, sometimes the emotions we feel are not our own. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. We're actually feeling other people's emotions. That's true too. Mm. And I had never thought of it that way. But then it made me think about kids and how kids will be up and down. And sometimes because they're a direct reflection of their environment. Mm. And I was like, man, you're right. And then some of the emotions I feel are not mine. They're the sadness of someone I'm working with mm. or close to. And I'm just helping them to carry it by caring a little bit for them, you know. Um, and that helped too because he was like, I was like, is something wrong with me? Yeah. I'm such a happy, you know, when you're yeah. when you're someone who's like always optimistic and like looking for the silver lining and just trying to solve things and suddenly you're like, oh man, like, what's, <laughs> this is hard to bad. solve. Yeah. <laughs> what's Dang. going on yeah. here? Um, and so that's been a huge challenge to kind of just accept that. You know, it's something I have to go through, mm. um, but it's also something that everyone goes through. So it's not me. <laughs> so I can't yeah. take it personally. Mm-hmm. Do you think that you've um, like had to learn to kind of detach, like like the word detach from the like immense emotions of things, like to step away, to realize that, to see that what yeah, to, like, what's affecting you? I don't know. Is there like any type of like space that you're able to kind of like mentally take by that awareness of you know realizing that you're carrying like other people's kind of what they're going through their weight of their stuff yeah you know like detachment's like a funny word right it's tossed around so much and i also feel like detachment is like a really really important word in like buddhism right and i sometimes feel like we misunderstand the word detachment because i think we can still be connected to others but be detached from our own role in their problems, right? Mm. And for me, um, understanding that was probably part of like my understanding of detachment to realize that, you know, I remember there are moments where people just start crying, you know? I was like one time in the basement of a restaurant and it was flooding and they're asking me to like figure something out for them and I look up and this waitress is like crying and I'm looking down and there's like flooding and like papers are floating around and like family heirlooms are also looking bad. (laughs) And I just look at her, she's crying and I look down and I'm just like, you don't have to do. And I just remember I just started crying. Like I wasn't necessarily sad. It wasn't my family business. It wasn't like my livelihood. But all I could do to like make her feel like she wasn't alone was just cry with her. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And but it's not at the end of the day, but it's still not my mm. my problem to be in. But I can still like connect mm. with people without taking it personally, yeah. I guess. So it's interesting because did you have like high emotional moments when you're doing journalism? You know, is there a difference of like the closeness that you have with like working with these like small businesses compared to like some of the crazy things that you've had to, you know, document and be a part of like on that scale, I guess? Like, you know, the diff- most difficult thing for me as of late, what has been to commit to new friendships? Mm. Like, I'm really lucky. Like, a lot of my closest friends I've known since I was like nine or 15, and I have a a really close friend I've known since we were like 10 and she always jokes like I met most of my closest friends when I was five I really don't want to like mess around with the system and like try to find more friends she's like I limit myself to like one new friend a year like like I got really lucky why would I like push the envelope on that that I met like my five best friends when I was like five years old you know and she's still friends with them to this day. Mm-hmm. And um, and then her and I are really good friends. And we met when we were like 10. 
Um, so I've been really, really lucky. And I think the hardest thing, and this is part of moving back to the U.S. and navigating, you know, the speed at which people like are like suddenly close. Yeah. <laughs> and then how like especially L.A. being such like a city of people you know, moving to and transient and people suddenly want to like be besties. Yeah. And I get like, oh my God, like we just met. Yeah. Um, and so I think for me, that's been one of the biggest challenges is allowing my, allowing myself to figure out like, oh, are we at a moment where we're like friends? Mm. Or, like we, we close, can I reach out to you? Mm. Like I always tease like um, James Choi, um, who I was talking about earlier, I kind of tease like, I was like, I don't really believe in guy friends. I don't know how we end up being friends, but you know, I definitely consider you like really close to me because you've done so much like begrudgingly. Yeah, and yeah, he's yeah. like, <laughs> he's like, are you saying we're family? Are you saying we're family? And I was like, I was complaining to Edmund one time. I was like, man, I always wish for a big brother. And then this was not what I imagined. Yeah. Like I thought it was gonna be someone really cool. Yeah, that's and so then funny. They would have really hot friends. <laughs> and then I would like get to hang out with like, you know, all these cute boys and everything. And Edmund's like, that's not usually how family works. Yeah. <laughs> and that's I was so like, oh. ah. <laughs> All right, come on, let's go ahead. That's funny. Um, so yeah, I think that's the hardest part. It's kind of just like allowing my friendships to develop and not like be like, ooh. <laughs> like yeah. too close too soon yeah. and be like okay maybe it's okay and then as an adult everything just gets more complicated mm. um but yeah i think that's been one of the harder things i think to navigate and um i was out with um shout out to intercrew where i was at last night amazing restaurant shout out to chef johnny for preparing amazing food there for uh the uprisers team and friends to enjoy and um, I had my friend George with me, um, who's like one of my best friends. And Michelle was like telling him how I supported her for the launch of the second version of her current brand and how like it gave her so much confidence and that helped her go into her third brand and like a nope. whole new mindset. And her third brand is easily the most successful of the three nice. <laughs> and it will continue to be so. So it's kind of a cool thing for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then I was like joking. I was like, oh, George is probably shocked that like you think that uh, I'm like happy and like supportive and confident all the time because all he does is listen to me cry. Like, hey, cry <laughs> oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> like, whatever, I'm just going to figure it out. Yeah, blah, yeah. Blah, blah. But like little by little, like learning the moments that who you can share those vulnerabilities to and when it can happen mm. and then realizing, okay, this person's accepting me. Maybe go, maybe in a few years we'll take it another step. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like maybe we'll get a little bit closer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe this is the friendship that's yeah. gonna go the the distance. Yeah. Um, but yeah, getting like letting the friendships happen and allowing your relationship deepen. I think that's been one of the toughest things mm. in my life, um, especially when I don't have as clear boundaries in my work versus personal as someone who works like a nine to five mm. and hates their coworkers and from the cubicle they're in. Mm. I love my clients. Like they're awesome. Like I, I mean, I'm grateful that, you know, they're my clients and I guess like to call them my friends. Yeah. Like but it's also like people are like boundaries, Mariko. I'm like, um, <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like I don't know I was just babysitting Kenji's daughters the other day and we were holding origami while we were waiting for the meeting to start oh, wow. so that's cool. mm. yeah. <laughs> 
was, if it's working, it's all good. Yeah, I kind of compare myself to that doctor in the countryside that, like, you know, ends up with like getting receiving chickens instead of payment sometimes mm. because <laughs> you know, community and sharing of resources yeah. Yeah. is a real thing when you're trying to all do better in a mm. scenario where the world keeps telling you it's just not going to happen mm. for you, you know? So um, it's tough, but that's probably the biggest thing that's been hard for me, especially in the last five years, is accepting new friendships and yeah. people in my life mm -hmm. um, and not throwing up like 15 walls yeah. and 500 like obstacles for them to navigate through. Yeah. It's understandable. Yeah. Work in progress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, what are you... I guess either currently working on or part of that you would be excited to share or something coming up that you like would like to share. Wait a second. <laughs> um, well, I'm super, super excited about what uh, all the businesses I'm doing with. I'm super proud of everyone. Like, you know, Darren Maki, who um, launched Craft by Maki, which is across the street. He launched in January 2020. Gosh, like, crazy. worst time, to, what a time. To, 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 to launch a non-essential business. <laughs> yeah. um, and I'm so proud of, like, the resilience and, like, the strength that he's shown. Um, and I don't know what's next for him, but I'm so proud of that he has he has thrown pasta at the wall, like, left and right. And um, he's done amazing work with a lot of our legacy businesses that – I'm really proud to be a part of. Um, you know, I was yesterday, I was at this amazing community event called Uprisers Family Drive, which was this like dream of Michelle's to have a festival of volunteering and every year it grows a little bigger. Um, so what's next is I, I'm really excited about these thoughts I have around what community engagement looks like. Um, I've been experimenting a lot with where we can we can have collective resources to support our small businesses and um, figure out how to support them through our collective resources, which I feel is our community and mm -hmm. our our youth and our our next gen, and also at the same time provide this like beautiful intergenerational space where we're learning from one another. Mm -hmm. I I used to worry during the pandemic. I had like you know I don't know like 40, 50 volunteers assigned to over a dozen small businesses, mostly legacy in Little Tokyo. We had weekly meetings and it was a lot happening. And sometimes I feel like business owners like I'm so sorry. Like I know you're really busy. If you don't want to do a weekly meeting this week, I can just send the notes to you later. And they used to tell me I love these meetings. Mm -hmm. These are great. I get so much energy. I feel like Kenji once said, I feel like I'm learning about my future customers. That's cool. Um, Irene was used to tell me, like, man, this program gave me um, Dane, and Dane's been such a blessing for mm. me. And um, I'm really excited about where that project has the potential to go or just that idea around what collective resources in a community looks like in mm. general, especially as we head into, I think, a couple of really, really, really tough years for small businesses, in particular in downtown, in Little Tokyo, in Los Angeles. Um, and I don't know how else small businesses can survive without working together. Yeah. Pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, I was curious, like, because you talked about, um, and then we can slowly start wrapping up, but uh, curious about... Um, your relationship with like time, I guess. Like you talked about how time management, I know it's like so crazy, but like how, like just how important time management is to you and like 
I'm just kind of curious, like more, like more in on like how you view, like, I don't know, like where you're at right now, like how, like the value that you put in time and like your time and what it means to you to like, mm -hmm. you know, spend it how you do. <laughs> this is like a favorite subject of mine, but it can turn into a rabbit hole. So I'll try to <laughs> simplify what, how I think about time. Mm -hmm. um, the other day I had a meeting with um, Tak Suzuki, who is the head of the Community Economic Development Department at Little Tokyo Service Center. He's a pretty big macro thinker, but also, you know, born and raised in this community. And um, we were ta he said something to the effect of, man, as you get older, the days get longer, but the months get shorter. Mm. And kind of talking about how time is just like, so feels like you have a lot, but also it's like fleeting all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, I think that, I think I've always been good at seeing things like where, like where things were going. And I think it's also like moving around so much, these juxtapositions of things that are happening in different cultures and mm. communities and countries. You start to like align things like, I see these parallels. I think if we continue this way and this is going this way, we're going to end up here, right? Um, like I remember a number of years ago being really concerned about supply chain issues. And this is before the pandemic and talking with mm. Irene about that and her and other business owners seeing like delays or mm. price changes or difficulty getting things from suppliers. Mm. And um, she started looking into sourcing more locally and supporting um, JA um, creators and um, makers and new Nikkei or Sheen. Sheen Issei, I guess is what they're called, mm. um, which Dane has, I mean, we're sitting in a space that's mm. filled with works by Shoshi Watanabe, mm. and um, over there we have Nostalgiana, and we have Kuni Yoshida over there, and these are all, you know, local folks, and I, I feel like I was kind of seeing it, and then I kind of made some suggestions, so it's like simultaneously trying to, quote unquote, like, see where we're going mm -hmm. but then trying to like if you tell people i can see the future mm. like you're selling crazy yeah. <laughs> so you're just trying to like keep that in mind mm. as you're like reverse engineering trying to figure out what do we have to do to today yeah. to get to tomorrow and so on and so forth but then at the same time always thinking about okay what things do i have to just give up that are not going to happen because we've literally we've hit the max of what i can do and so at the end of the day i'm like okay this isn't going to happen that's not going to happen i have a friend she um works as a developer um machiko yasuda and she has lots of like interesting thoughts around time management because developers obviously work in really interesting like sprints mm -hmm. sometime and how they manage time through project management tools is super interesting. Um, but she used to say she had a job where she used to close all her tabs at the end of the day mm -hmm. because she just felt like walking into her office and turning her computer and seeing all these tabs for the day before was not productive for her. Interesting. And she just had to let go that like, yeah. some things just aren't gonna get done today yeah. and okay. tomorrow I'll figure out yeah. what needs to pri prioritize that day, especially when you're working in a space where you know, like building websites where things break all the time and you have to change things on a moment's notice and suddenly this like aspirational project you have is just turning mm -hmm. more and more into parking lot to cemetery, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, spaces. And, um, and I think that's hard. And then it's important too, I think, I keep kind of like vision boards up where I'm mm -hmm. like, these are my core values. These are the goals assigned to it. Here are projects that align to it. Mm -hmm. And then thinking about... Um, I mean, it's a very like very specific exp explanation, but thinking about where things fit together, so you know you work smarter instead of harder, and having the visuals for me helps a lot because then I can see where I can collective resources like combine things, put people on multiple things, 
um, see the intersections and collaboration opportunities with clients or communities or organizations. Mm. Um, and then kind of, I tell people like this as a joke, but it's also kind of true because I'm like, I'm definitely an introvert, but I love connecting people. And I say, my dream is that all of my friends will be such good friends with all of my other friends <laughs> that they can have a party. And if I don't show up, everyone will still have a good time because they all know each other. Yeah. I and I that. can just hang out at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I'm just <laughs> chilling <laughs> out, yeah, with the popcorn. Like, uh, <laughs> just got cameras, you know. Yeah. They're all mingling. Excellent. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Basically, it's like the ultimate time management hack yeah. for me. Yeah. Ah, they're all they're all taking care of each other. My work here is like, done. Perfect, yeah. <laughs> Did Mariko come and just chew right through the door? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I love to Irish goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> oh. yeah. Smooth. Yeah. I'm definitely an Irish goodbye kind of girl. <laughs> now with social media, it's nice because you can like take a photo, you can tag everyone. Yeah, yeah. Had a great time tonight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like a social media Irish goodbye. <laughs> I did that last night at Intercrew. I was like, I can't say goodbye everyone one by one. Like, yeah. It'll take forever. So I just like. Take the flick. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'll say goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, yeah, I was like, I'll say goodbye to one person, and then I'll just take a photo and tag everyone else. They say no, like I was thinking of that. Yeah, that that'll do. That'll do. Say goodbye from like your the the comfort of your home. Like, oh, it was good to see you. (laughs) Yeah, OMG, so fun. I kind of did that too, so it's like yeah. You know, that's the like, beauty of social media. Like those are the good things about social media. Like, <laughs> it can help you kind of manage your time mm. um, if used, you know, effectively. It can also be a suck if you're not careful. So yeah. it goes both ways. Big yeah. facts. Um, we're getting t- close to the tail end of the pod. Did cool. you guys have any final questions? And then I've got one in the chamber I'd like to ask. But um, all right, I am kind of curious, but I want to see if I this might be a if it's let her rip. Oh, okay. Choke. Um, how do you feel? Okay. The anticipation. Okay. I'm like, oh, oh my sorry. gosh. No, it's not big. I'm just like, because you've been in journalism, you know, or you were in journalism for so long. Like, what do you think about like, just like Twitter and like, and getting information that way or like how it's being, how it's kind of like transformed. I feel like, like, I feel like Twitter was different, you know, when it first started. And now oh. it seems like, it seems like there's big machines like pushing different things or you know it just didn't seem like as natural as like how information is being disseminated yeah yeah Yeah. i don't know just like how see i don't even know if it's a clear question it just feels like things have these narratives are like pushed in ways that it feels even harder to just trust like any type of information Mm -hmm. i'm at a point now where i'll even like you know yeah, just uh, established, you know, companies. It's like I, yeah, I feel even less trust with you know some of these things. And yeah, um, I feel like there are a couple questions in there. Yeah, I think some, the first maybe one maybe somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the first question that I think you were asking that I'll tackle is that I do feel that the way that our um, browsing history information. And um, the way that we utilize our devices and social media um, regurgitates and aggregates information that's too same and it doesn't introduce us as much to new things that I think is really dangerous because it's when we can't see like nuanced differences between new topics or be introduced in a way to like find out about stuff. Um, 
I think that's really tough, you know, like I used to hope that the way the discovery pages were working mm -hmm. on different social media sections that we would have these areas that were introducing things that were like so different, right? Mm -hmm. But actually we're just being introduced like lots of things that are already within our mm -hmm. realm of interest. Mm -hmm. And while that's convenient, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's like, really great for growth. Mm -hmm. um, and it can also create like very polarizing um you know, opinions, and then it can also be really damaging, I think, for our health, because if you've, you know, just gone through a breakup and all you've been doing is like, you know, looking at all the sad memes, yeah. and then that's being <laughs> aggregated back to you, yeah. like, how are you supposed to move on? Yeah, like, sad meme pit. <laughs> yeah, sad. you're just like, oh, I remember one of my friends who um, just went through a divorce, she said it best, she's like, oh, finally, all the memes about breakups and sadness, oh, and oh, I'm better oh. than that relationship have finally disappeared yeah. from my feet. <laughs> <laughs> So I think like I've moved on. Nature's healing. Or, yeah, basically, that's what it was. Her search engine has finally allowed her as she has, has gone far enough down that's that funny. it's it's the history is far enough back that they're like she won't be interested yeah. in this content anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's crazy. So I find that to be really dangerous. Um, and then I think the other thing that is really like frustrating for me when I look at how people find information, like oh, there's no information about that, and I'm like. Actually, there's lots of information about lots of things, um, but whether the information is convenient uh, and easily available is like a whole nother story. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's not, then, um, you know, why don't you figure out what it takes to learn about it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and don't blame others for not sharing those stories. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, you think that's a great story? You're sad that no one's talking about it? Mm -hmm. The great thing about social media is we can all share stories that we think yeah. are worth talking about. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I think is the amazing part of the internet. Um, maybe you won't get like a million people viewing your page or website that you look at, um, but you really only need a few that are interested enough in that story that they are like, whoa, I'm so glad I know about this now, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so yeah, I media is a scary thing. and. The algorithms just keep spinning us out of place. Mm. But I do feel like the nice thing about talking to people in person is when you throw like a mix of people together that are all from different backgrounds, that's when like mm -hmm. you can have those interesting discussions and talks because algorithm can't control us yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Not in> IRL. <laughs> that's true. We just need to like, yeah, hang out in person more. <laughs> yeah. We just need to hang Different out. Engagement. <laughs> yeah, straight mm -hmm. up. Nice. Mm -hmm. Pretty cool. Very interesting. What's, um, what's your question? Yeah, mine is a wrap up question. Oh, so okay, sure. We we there? It's All right. Wrap up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been uh, <laughs> so incredible getting a chance to speak with you, but we're not done yet. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Um. So my last question is uh, for what advice would you give to anyone else out there who's maybe considering pursuing a non-traditional life or career path? Um, I think the most important thing is to come up with your own definitions and KPIs of success. I, I think with the thing that like when people are like, I didn't sell anything or, you know, I didn't make it or, you know, I didn't succeed. I'm like, what does that mean? You know, like, is this your measurement? Is this something you decided or is this a standard that someone else told you is your measurement of success? And 
Also, have you evaluated, like, has anyone done, like, a retro with you? <laughs> like, not to use, like, technical anal anal analysis kind of vocabulary, but I think that's the most important thing is, like, to create, um, you know, create decisions around what success means and looks like and what that definition is. And it can be, like, a broad definition of, like, your life. Like, success to me is going to be to make sure that, you know, I leave, um, you know, my community uh, with some kind of information about this topic because I'm really passionate about it, right? And that could be something like a lifetime goal. But maybe it's just being like, you know, like I'm creating this product that I think is really great and I want to sell it. Um, and my definition of success is I introduce X number of people to it and they're going to try it, enjoy it, or share about it, mm. right? And then I think when we do those kinds of measurements of success, then we feel less like we're constantly failing and that can give us the confidence to like figure out, okay, mm. what am I gonna do next? Mm. And then where does that go? What am I gonna do next? Um, and so that would be my, I guess, the advice I would give to someone who's asking me about that because uh, like if you start getting wrapped up in what everyone else tells you is what you should be feeling or where you should be at mm -hmm. or what goals you should have hit or the KPIs or OKRs or numbers or sales or, you know, um, foot traffic numbers, um, you're like never, you're never going to be happy. Um, and I, and then once you start to be unhappy then it's not worth doing anymore. Mm. Facts. Wow. Incredible words of advice. Thank you so much. Yeah. Mariko, it's been a, a wonderful time getting a chance to speak with you, learn more about what you do and what you have done. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me on. And I got to tell you, the best part of this evening, I mean, I love talking with you guys, oh. but the fact that Sheba Bros oh. was yeah. on right before me, <laughs> I was just like, well... Big time. I mean, I don't even have to do the podcast yeah. anymore. My night is my night is excellent. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, so. did you see yeah. Sheba yeah. Bros in here earlier? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll connect it at the end. Of yeah, we'll, we'll insert clip here. Um, guys, this has been an, another incredible episode. We hope you have a wonderful rest of your day, evening, morning, whatever time you're here in this. And we'll catch y'all next time on the Dipped Podcast. And we out of here, baby. Thank you.